I'm continuing on in the Minor Prophets, you know, that dark region that never gets read intentionally. Um, realize that if I don't, if I don't uh, get involved in it very much, my impression is that you probably don't either, maybe even less than I do. So we're trying to walk through some of these and, and uh, give some of the basis for what, how they're written and uh, the details of that. So this morning, I'm going to the book of Hosea. And uh, I'll just remind you that Israel had become a very wealthy... It had split Judah and Israel. The, the tribes had split, and Israel was the the group that actually split away, didn't worship at Jerusalem, embraced idolatry quicker, but were the wealthier of the two. They had more fertile land, and they were on the trade routes. And so their slide into um, commitment with other cultures and the connection with them was much stronger and took place quicker than what happened with Judah. Um, so they, they moved into um, a place where basically they became wealthy and forgot God. That, that would simplify it. Um, in their worship, essentially sensuality replaced spirit. So it was doing the things that brought joy in the temporal that, uh, in a sense, were highs, physically, but also really weren't responding to God. I'll give you an example. When, when they would go worship different idols, often they would be eating and drinking and having sex with prostitutes that were connected with the, the uh, idol worship. But it's, it's all this sensuality, and it's located in the temporal, right? And, and so it's a physical and emotional high, but not a true spirit high in God. And so sensuality replaced God, essentially. Um, they also began making alliances with other kingdoms. Rather than inquire God and seek his help for peace, they started working things together so that they would have these alliances and treaties that supposedly would bring peace. And God's going, no, if you have peace, it's because of me. Okay, that said, uh, Hosea is one, another one of these books that's largely poetry. It doesn't come across in our writing because it's already been translated, and, and it's a different form of poetry than what we're used to. We're used to meter and rhyme, working in our poetry. There they developed more parallel thoughts, and so they'd make a statement, and then they kind of say it similarly, but uh, bringing more depth to it, but it was, it was these parallels, and you see that regularly in, in their writings. So much so that I'm told that a third to half of the Old Testament is poetry, which kind of blows me away because I, I generally don't even see it. Um, but this book was almost entirely written that way. Um, I'm going to walk through the translation, the contemporary English translation. That's what I'm going to use this morning. 
Uh, I chose that for one specific reason. Now, that's a paraphrase. It's not as literally accurate as, uh, say, the English Standard Version. Um, but there are differences in some of the wording that, um, well, Hosea is asked to take on a wife that uh, in the ESV of whoredoms, it says. And I'm going, well, a whore in our culture has become a term that's used more like a curse. You know, other translations will say an adulterous woman. Uh, some will say an unfaithful wife. But, it, you know, you have to say, what's the intensity that this writer is trying to get across? And I'm going, it was common enough in that day that I don't think it was seen as a curse. So I just chose that. I just, you know, you have to sort through and say, what, what are we going to use? Now, it, there are points where it's not as accurate as what are. I think it's, its translation maybe gets a different idea from the passage and what I see. And so in that sense, it's not as literal allowing you to decide, but it already makes a decision for you. So that's what a paraphrase is more about. The New Living Translation uh, has, in a sense, gone from where the living was a paraphrase that suddenly lit up the Christian world years and years ago because it was so easy to understand. And then the New Living has tried to bring in a little more literal accuracy, even though trying to keep it readable. So you have that whole range of things, and I know I'm way off track, and I'm not even, it's not where I want to go. Um, in this book of Hosea, there's, you need to note that God says, punishment is coming for the way that you lived. But interspersed throughout this book is also a declaration that says, I love you, and I'm going to restore you at some point. It, it, there's always this declaration of, I can't tolerate sin and just leave it un, unattended. And I am going to punish you, but know this, I... I can't hold my anger forever. And so I'm going to end up seeking you out and drawing you back in. Um, what's unusual about this book that a person has to almost get past the first couple chapters because in the first three chapters, he's told, I want you to go marry an adulterous woman or an unfaithful wife. You go, What? That seems pretty eccentric. I mean, how would we feel if, if somebody in our group did a similar thing and saying, well, God told me to do this just to show what's happening in our culture. He, he, he sent me out to marry a woman who's going to cheat on me, but that's just a bigger picture of the church as a whole, and so that's what you need to know. How would you be with that? That would give... That would cause me a problem. And, and premarital counseling would be very interesting. <laughs> right? I'm not sure I could buy it. I just... Well, in the third chapter, he takes it even further. It says, okay, I want you to go out and get a wife for yourself that's already got a lover. What? So, all of that is said to say... And what we have to do is release that picture, that eccentricity, 
and say, this is how God is presenting, this is the way that Israel is living before God. They're living unfaithful. They've taken on other lovers. And yet, he says, I'm going to seek them out and draw them back into relationship. I, I, I am not going to let it just go, but I am still going to deal with this. So I encourage you to read through the book and force yourself past the first few chapters that are so unusual and, and allow the, the, what's written to, to embrace us because in some ways it is a very timely book for the culture that we live in. Um, one, one note in regard to eccentricities. Regularly in life, you will find people ministering to you or saying things that really are accurate, but they can be offensive in the form that they come in, and you're going to have to look past that. Um, when I first moved to this area, there were some special meetings on the other end of the peninsula, and uh, we went to them and walked into this little old church that uh, didn't look like much. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of going, you know, and it's pretty dirty. And I just, nothing appealed to me in it. And then they started playing music that was from the 60s. And I'm just chafing. I just, oh, God, help me. Uh, that was said as a prayer, you know. <laughs> and shortly into that music, um, a guy comes in. He's maybe 5'6", weighs 400 pounds or a little over. And I'm going, I hope that's not the guest speaker. He sits down on two chairs and... Uh, and I'm, what a lack of discipline, you know, and I, I'm just judging all this stuff. Well, it was the speaker, and the very first thing he does when he stands up to speak, he goes, there's nine or ten people in here that uh, are dealing with smoking. And I'm going, really? That's all you got? You know, it, this is the most important thing you're going to deal with? And... You know, everything about him was offending me in that moment. Now, several people got delivered from smoking that night, which I'm going, you know, I don't get it, but it's, that's a good thing. Shortly after that, he calls out a thing on hearing, and a woman who'd, who'd been bitten by a bee in her ear when she was, uh, I think the age was like six or seven, uh, hadn't heard in that ear from that time on, got healed. Suddenly she could hear. And I'm just going, well, there's probably more to this than what I am imagining. But, uh, you know, so the evening goes on, and it comes to the offering. And I, when I'm in a, a guest in a place, I usually pray and ask, God, how much do you want me to give? And it was probably... five to ten times what I would normally do. And, I, you know, it's the, there was like an immediate sense in my heart. I'm going, what? And I'm still mad. 
and I'm thinking this can't even be God. And and then, then I and yet if you pray, you better respond to what you get, right? So the the offering process was ugly. Um, people were coming up, handing the man their their money, their checks. He would take a look at it, and then he'd pray over it. And I'm. I'm very offended at that moment, you know. And man of God that I am, I sent Shar up with it. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want anything to do with him. And so, true to form, he opens it. And he goes, God's going to answer your prayer, but it's not because of what you've given. And well, Okay. But that night, he, he spoke into our lives some very specific accuracy, called out Marquette, didn't know where we were from, spoke some of the things that have been spoken over the church, spoke to us individually in some areas that, that we needed to hear. And I'm going, I never would have believed it. It didn't come in a package that I anticipated, but it was from God. So in some ways, you know, a, a thing like this book, when you're looking at it and going, this is so far out of left field, you know, this isn't even in the ballpark compared to what I think should happen, but it did. And yet there's a message here of value. And if we can look past those eccentricities, so to speak, there's value for us even in today. I needed to cover one other thing before we go further. In that region of the world, Baal worship was, was commonplace. That was kind of, um, it was like, it was done differently in locations, kind of like different denominations. But there was some common threads. Uh, Baal was the sun god and also the storm god was responsible for fertility, both of the soil and for individuals. And so, in other words, it was like he sends the sun and crops spring up, but also the sun can destroy a crop if there's too much of it, right? And so there's this fear and this need to worship, you know, and, and get things right. That was part of it. But so tied to this fertility of the soil is also their belief that for children that this fertility was linked to it as well. And so part of their worship would be to go and have sex at these sites with the idea that we want you to bring fertility to us as a people. So we'll practice a rite here. Sounds very strange to us, but that's... The, the tie-in, so to speak. Now they had, remember even Judah, the, one of the 12 sons, when he was, um, another strange story, his daughter-in-law had been given two of his sons. They were wicked. God put them to death. The third son, he didn't give to her. And later she goes and dresses as a shrine prostitute. And he ends up having sex with her, and, and she gets pregnant, and the rest is history, as we say. 
he's in the line of our Savior. You know, he pulls in different odd things that we're forced to look at and say, well, I don't get it, but it's there. Um, they Already that shrine prostitute and that kind of thing was established several hundred years before this book. Um, in Numbers 25, when the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they're in the desert, the Moabites. Now, the Moabites call Balaam and he makes these incredible prophecies about them that uh, God is going to bless them abundantly. And then the very next chapter, they, they do the stupid thing of they go with the Moabite women they, they offer sacrifices, they sit down and eat and get drunk together, and then they have sex with the Moabite women. It's all connected to that Baal worship. And so they bring destruction internally by this behavior. So, you know, it's, they have that in their history, but it, it continues on. And so when Israel becomes its own nation and develops its own idols and such, they are adapting to the culture of the region, but it's the very reason God kicked those people groups out for their wickedness. And so Hosea is addressing this wickedness and saying, you cannot live like the culture around you and embrace this kind of wickedness and expect to receive the blessing of God. He's going to punish you for this. But then in return, he's also going to draw you back to him because he just does not want to live alone. He wants you as his children. Okay. A um, couple more things about Baal. Often he's, he's represented as a god with a lightning bolt, you know, the god of the storm. Here's an interesting thing. When Elijah took on the prophets of Baal, previous to this book, what did he do? He called out drought for three years, they have it. So he's saying, my God controls the rain, not yours. And then the display, when they have their showdown on Mount Carmel, remember? 400 prophets of Baal, you know, they're shouting and slashing themselves and nothing's getting done. Then he pours water around the sacrifice, calls down fire from heaven. So who's in charge of the lightning bolts? God. So it's a, a direct power confrontation. Um, one, one more point. There was a demonic attachment to these idols. And you should never view it as just a... a, a non-spiritual thing entirely, okay? There was a demonic presence attached to such things. And so there would have been supernatural, often like we associate with fear and other things, there would have been a sense of something unusual, but it wasn't a good sense. Jesus refers to Satan as Beelzebub. That was the Baal of the Philistines, Okay? Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it's not appropriate for you to sit down, eat and drink in sacrifice to what? Demons. Even though they were at the temples of idols, he's saying this is demonic worship. So again, don't associate this as, as just nothing. There was a, 
a, a spirit sense, but it was, it was very dark and very minimal, okay? Okay, to the, to the book. In the first verse, it talks about him uh, being a prophet during the reign of several kings. What's important for you to note is that these governments were relatively unstable during that season of time. They were in the death throes, so to speak, and so things weren't functioning real clear, and kings were dying, getting assassinated, and, and Assyria was always a, a tension. Uh, Assyria was a, in a land north of them. It included roughly half a dozen of the countries that we know today. So it, it was the, just a mass north of them that would march down on them all the way into Egypt, in fact. Um, so that said, verses 2 and 3, Hosea, Israel has betrayed me like an unfaithful wife. Marry such a woman and have children by her. So I married Gomer. So what's the point? Now we get obsessed over him marrying Gomer, but it, he says, this is my relationship with Israel at this point. It's... It's like experiencing an affair in marriage. It's like one partner cheating. He's going, this is how it is with us. He has three children through her. And uh, the first one's named Jezreel. He says, he's referring to an incident where King Jehu had murdered some people. And he's going, because of that stain, I'm going to disperse that people. I'm going to, they're, they're going to be punished for that. The second child is a daughter called Lo-Ruhama. That's a name for a girl, huh? He's saying, I am not going to show mercy. So how would you like the name No Mercy? <laughs> Brutal stuff. Third child's a son, Lo-Ami. He's saying, that's not my child. It's rough, isn't it? He's going, that's the way you've been living. And so in the practical form, he's going, not my baby. Brutal. But then he goes on in the same chapter and goes, I will have mercy and save Judah not by, not by your own power, not by wars and arrows or swords and, or cavalry. So he, he gives a, a prophecy to, the, to Judah, separate from Israel. He just says, I'm going to save them and protect them, but it's not going to be by their strength. And that, that did come through in that. But he goes on and says, Regarding Israel, someday it will be impossible to count the people of Israel. So he's saying, I'm going to wipe them out, but if you look way down the road, they're going to be like the sand of the seashore. And in the future, they'll be called children of the living God. So it's going to go from not mine to they're my children. And then he goes and says, Israel and Judah will unite and choose one leader. So they're going to come back together. These two that have been living apart, he says, 
they're going to come back together. And they'll be called my people. And your sisters will be called shown mercy. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to embrace them and I'm going to show mercy. So throughout this book, you have these declarations. This is why punishment is coming. This is the punishment that's coming. But also, in the future, I'm going to draw you back in. That's a standard process in this particular book. Chapter 2. Accuse, accuse your mother. She's no longer my wife. And I am the Lord and not her husband. So he says, we're getting a divorce. I can't look at it this way. I can't treat you as my wife when you wander off and do your own thing. It's just, it's impossible. Irreconcilable differences. Separating. He says, your children are the result of unfaithfulness. Illegitimate. That's what he's labeling them. I'll show you no pity. She was disgraceful and said, I'll run after my lovers. Everything comes for them. My food, my drink, my linen, my wool, my olive and oil and wine. Remember Baal? God of fertility. So he's saying Israel has looked at the Baals and said, they're the reason that we're prospering so much. They're the reason that everything's working. And so he's going, I can't let that continue. I'm going to have to take that away from you. He says, I'll build a fence of thorns to block her path. And again, we're, we're, <laughs> this is pre-barbed wire days, right? So one of the ways of containing animals would be to take um, bushes with thorns and such and, and form a, a paddock. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm going to, to form a fence that she can't get away from. And then she's going to end up saying, I'll return to my first husband. Life was better then. So that's the declaration. He says, I'm going to put you and bring you to a place where you're going to say, I was better off with God. And go back. He says, I'll... She didn't know that her grain, wine, oil, olive oil, and gifts were for me. And the gold and silver she used in worshiping Baal. So he's going... The very things that they were offering to this idol were the things that I had given them. So I'll hold back the harvest of grapes and grain. Take back my wool and linen. My, she says, my lovers gave me vineyards and fig trees as payment for sex. Now I, the Lord, will ruin her vineyards and fig trees. So again, this is very vivid in its imagery so much so that it's, it's difficult for us to get past it. But at the same time, God's saying, this is, this is the way I'm looking at this relationship in this moment. Then, again, there's a statement of mercy. It says, I'm going to lure you into the desert and speak gently to you and return your vineyards. Then the trouble valley will become hopeful valley. yes. To me, as you did in your youth when leaving Egypt. I'll promise from that day on you'll call me husband. In other words, these pagan gods you were calling master. You know, you, you, you were attempting to appease them so they wouldn't treat you badly. He says, 
We're not looking at master here. We're looking at husband and wife relationship. That's, that's how it's going to be with us. He says, I agree to let you live in peace. He says, I'll accept you as my wife forever. Instead of a bride price, I'll give you justice, fairness, love, kindness, and faithfulness. Um, I was looking up the difference between dowry and bride price and that kind of thing, and what I found was that the dowry was what the woman would bring to the, the marriage. The bride price is what the guy would pay. And it wasn't to buy the bride as much as it was a declaration of the family, I can provide for this woman. Often the dowry was more than what the bride price would be. So it was, it was a thing of a, a young man coming to a family and saying, I'll give you this in, in a, a declaration of that, I'm capable of providing for your daughter. And then as the marriage went forward, they would provide a dowry. Um, one of the illustrations that I saw linking is that nowadays, a guy will, will provide a diamond ring, you know, showing that he can earn enough money. You didn't get much, did you? <laughs> one very big. It's best I could do. Uh, but in that, the, the guy was making the point, he's going, at least the money wasn't going to somebody else unknown, at least the money was going to family. Yeah, kind of an interesting concept in that. Let's toss that on a little aside. He says, I'll command the sky to send rain, the earth will produce grain and grapes and olives in Jezreel. I'll scatter seed and show mercy. And I'll say to them, you are my people. And they'll answer, you are our God. So again, punishment's coming, but I'm going to show mercy because that's the way I function. Chapter 3. Once again, the Lord spoke to me a second time. Hosea, fall in love with an unfaithful woman who has a lover. Do this to show that I love people of Israel even though they worship idols. So he's going, even though they're living profanely, I still love them. This is a powerful understanding for us. I mean, there are times when we do wander off. And we wake up one morning and we say, I have been really stupid. I wonder if God would allow me to come back to him. I wonder if, if he would be willing. You know, it's kind of a much, bit much to think. And yet we read through a book like this, and he's going, you know what? Here's an illustration for you. Marry a woman who's unfaithful and, and has a lover already, and yet that's a declaration of me reaching out even before you get your act together. Powerful illustration. So I paid 15 pieces of silver and about 10 bushels of grain for such a woman. Went and paid the bride price. Now you're mine. You'll have to remain faithful to me, though it will be a long time before we sleep together. So again, he, this illustration is going even further. He's going, you need to know that as a nation, I'm going to bring you back 
But it's going to be a long while before we're truly functioning like a husband and wife. He says it will be a long time before Israel has a king or before sacrifices are offered at the temple or before there is any way to get guidance from God. They will come to the Lord with fear and trembling and he'll be good to them. So he says there's coming a day when they're going to come back and they're going to be shaking, kind of wondering if they'd even be accepted. And he's going to say, yeah, it's going to happen. Now, there are other names that he gives to them in this book. Uh, unfaithful wife isn't the only one. Um, he calls them a stubborn cow. He says they're like Adam. Now, the illustration is, and this is where I didn't like the contemporary English version, but the idea is that Adam was in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, but he gave it up and stepped into sin in spite of it. And so he's going, Israel has this bountiful land that God brought you into, and yet you've given it up. So he says, you're like Adam, your original father. He says, also, he calls them a piece of thin, scorched bread. He says, you're so fragile, you don't even know it. You're a tortilla that's been baked too long. <laughs> Snap. Calls them a senseless bird. Yeah, tortilla is a loose translation. <laughs> Flittering all around, no clue what's going on. Says you're like a crooked arrow. You're about that useful. Calls him a wild donkey. That's how you live. You're just doing your own thing. Wander off. He says, you're like your father Jacob. He was a cheat before he was ever born. So he says, you're cheats as well. And then, I think I'm translating this right, but he says, you're like a child that doesn't know enough when to be born. I think it's like a stillborn child. It's just, it's a horrible thing. He's just saying there's no sense about it. Uh, the issues that he has that come across in this book are these. He says there's a lack of faithfulness and loyalty or a true caring about God. Uh, cursing, dishonesty, murder, robbery, unfaithfulness, violence. Uh, here's an interesting thing. He says, you've become foolish uh, because you've been too much into your pleasure in wine. <laughs> That's a lot like today, right? So into pleasure that our lives take on a foolishness. He says, your craving for sex keeps you from knowing me. Well, I wish there were some illustrations we could tie into and say, That's like our culture. Right? He says, your pride testifies to your guilt. And you keep asking Assyria for help instead of asking God. He also goes, you know, you were... Um, I'll get to it. He says, your pleasure for sin, you're, you're always burning with desire. You're, 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 it's, it's so much over you that that's your constant preoccupation. 
And he says, guilt has filled you with hatred. That's an intriguing idea, isn't it? He says, you carry guilt and eventually it becomes hatred. Have you experienced that in your relationships? At times when a relationship gets violated and eventually that person either feels a hatred towards you or you feel really bad toward them, if you've been the guilty party, it it goes further than what we think it should, but it, he's, he, he calls it out. He just says, this is a reality of life. And then he says, you've been looking to a king for answers. You asked for a king, I gave you, that's what all the nations around them had. Gave you a king, and now I'm going to take your king away because that is not the answer. And again, you know, we get preoccupied with our government system and we want it just so. There's more to it than that. And again, that's a truth that we should pull out of this. Just a, a few other summary verses. I took Israel by the arm, taught them to walk, healed them, led them with kindness and with love. I held them close to me. I bent down and fed them. He gives the picture of a child. I held their hand so that they could learn how to walk. You know, I was gentle in leading them. I wasn't just pushing them in. I was, you know, I was helping them along. I gave them the food that they needed. They didn't respond. They trusted Egypt instead of returning to me. Israel will rule them. War will visit their cities. Their plans will fail. In the 11th chapter, it goes on. They are determined to reject me for a God they think is stronger. But listen to this. Ninth verse. I just can't do it. My feelings for you are too strong. Israel, I won't lose my temper and destroy you again. I'm the holy God, not merely some human, and I won't stay angry. What a powerful declaration. And when we talk about a loving God who refuses to just embrace sin or allow us to wonder, but he's gone, I can't stay angry forever. That's just not me. What an incredible declaration. Would to God that we'd live the same way, right? I just don't stay mad very long. It's just not who I am. I wish I was more like that. But he says, that's who God is. Not merely human. Then in the 13th chapter, he says, I'm only God the only God, you know the, the only one who can save. I took care of you in a thirsty desert. I fed you till you were satisfied. Then you became proud and forgot me. 14th chapter. You've rejected me, but my anger is gone. I will heal you and love you without limit. I'll be like the dew. You're going to blossom. He goes on to say, you'll rest in my shade. Your grain will grow. I'll answer your prayers and take care of you. And the glorious tree, the source of fruit. He concludes with this declaration. 
If you're wise, you'll know and understand what I mean. I'm the Lord, and I will lead you along the right path. If you obey me, we will walk together. But if you're wicked, you'll stumble. So again, one of these books that maybe we're not quick to get into, but still very relevant to our day, very relevant to our lives. You know, if, if there is this worry of, would God receive me again? Surely this is one of those books that says, yeah. If there's this awareness that says, well, seems like people get away with a lot and there's no, or a loving God, would he ever punish? Absolutely. He does not just let things go. But know, too, that he isn't of this revenge motivated drive that says, I will crush you and destroy you, never to be rebuilt. He's not the guy that's going to say, yeah, you stepped over the line, done. Now, he, he does respond, but still there's that opportunity to see his mercy as we call out. The culture of our day is very similar to what has been, right? I mean, we, we tend to go, oh, it's so profane now. I mean, with the internet porn and everything else, and, and you're going, we've got nothing on those folks, what was going on, right? I mean, generally, it's not seen as worship to go have sex with a prostitute. It's not seen as the highlight of worshiping God. So, I mean, there was, there was stuff going on that even shocks us. But that said, we don't want culture to infiltrate in and dominate our lives. We want to be countercultural in that regard. And the chase for pleasure and, and sensuality, when you deny the presence of God and spirit, all that's really left to you are emotional and physical highs. And so your senses cry out to see everything, hear everything, taste everything, touch everything. It's, it's all temporal, but it's, it's wanting that high of the moment. And yet a book like this brings us warning and says that is not a healthy road to go down. And the challenge is to allow our holy God to speak into our lives and guide our steps and to walk in obedience to him and to trust him for restoration when we need it. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Again, one of your life-giving writings that draws us to you and helps us understand our interaction with you. I pray for each one here that they would know peace with you and have that sense of sins forgiven as they yield unto you. Amen. I just I want to declare, if you've been struggling and recognize the conflict of current culture and obedience to Christ, it's probably a fight that you're never going to get over entirely, but it's a, it's a winnable fight, 
and it's a worthwhile fight. And so we take that on and say, in obedience to God and in honor of who he is, this is the way that we're going to live. Now, if you've been, if you recognize yourself and going, I've been losing in this fight, know too that God would draw you back in and call you his own again. If you're willing, that he does forgive. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so let's get that straight before we head home, okay? And if you would benefit from another praying with you, then certainly take advantage of that. Um, when I was walking through this, I, I'm going, I, uh, I tend to avoid these books because they're, they're, they're hard. You know, it's work to, to find the nuggets, so to speak. But at the same time, they're really valuable. So I'd encourage you, maybe go home and read this thing so while it's fresh, so it, it sticks. Just uh, we'll try to keep on that in weeks ahead. I'd like to pray for God's blessing on you. And then what remains is open-ended worship. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. And discover with joy what it is to be a child of God. Ask, Lord, as each one goes into the community, that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. I said you'd gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen. Amen. God bless you.